Are you suffering from poor decision-making skills, lack of self-confidence and self-esteem? Do you have impeded development of social, emotional, and sexual skills? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Rachel, and you might be suffering from religious trauma. I left evangelicalism and started a podcast. I talk about my experience with purity culture, why I left, and the journey afterwards. I'm happy you're here. Come along for the ride. Cheers to leaving. Hey everyone, it's Rachel and this is Cheers to Leaving. And I'm Molly and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Andrew Jasko from Life After Dogma and we're super excited to talk to him all about deconstructing and complex PTSD and religious trauma and all of the above. So welcome Andrew. Can you tell great to be here? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. So I help people heal from religious trauma and reclaim a healthy, authentic sense of spirituality, if that's something that they're interested in, within their own worldview. So however that might look to them. And um, I help people also deconstruct, especially evangelical Christianity. I focus a lot on that. I'm a writer and I'm a speaker. So yeah, that's a little bit about what I do. And it comes straight out of my background being really, really deep in it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you like you got into this work? Sure. Well, I was born into it, and uh, apparently it was due to the Holy Spirit. I, uh, my mother... <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks a lot, God. You know, um, but... Thanks for this, that. Yeah, seriously. So my mother received a prophecy about me before I was born that I was going to be this man of God with the Bible verse and everything. And my father is a Pentecostal Assemblies of God minister. So I was born into the church and they they started the church right around when I was born in uh, New Jersey. And so I was just raised with this massive, grandiose vision of saving the world from hell. You know, which <laughs> I think we is, all shit right. ton of pressure. <laughs> exactly. Which I think is the, the fundamental motive, rock bottom motivation behind religious fundamentalism is the fear of hell. Oh, so yeah. uh, that was, you know, my drive, but, but also the, the sense of altruism and meaning and purpose that that gives one to help people, to serve people. Uh, so I was really deeply embedded in this church community growing up. I was at church all the time, doing all the things, uh, doing mall evangelism as a five-year-old kid, terrified of hell as a five-year-old kid. And uh, so I just, but you know, I thought it was reality. I thought this is just the way reality is. It was my worldview and never really seriously questioned it until, uh, Grad school. So I went to Wheaton College, even an evangelical Christian college, Ooh, studied Wheaton. Bible and theology. I'm from Illinois. Yeah. All right. I know that all right. School. So you know. <laughs> yeah, you know how it is. And uh, then I became an associate minister, and I was planning to become a missionary to India to convert Hindus and Muslims to Christianity, because that's where all the unreached people groups were. were or a heavily concentrated the 1040 group of, window. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we were we were doing it like like Jason Bourne Christianity style. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Yeah, the elite agents. Oh my god. I this know. is just giving me so I was a missionary kid so I'm just like, oh. Yeah, undercover it's missionaries. Flooding. It's flooding back. the masses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and and they have anti-conversion laws in India so it's yeah. really exciting, you know, like yeah. you're really You're, you're undercover. Really you have exactly. to, you're like a spy. You're yeah, like, hey, yeah. do you want to come to my house for coffee? <laughs> and <laughs> wink, then wink. they come over and you have the Bible and you're like, so I'm going to talk to you about Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> it's great. It's great though. They have a great time frustrating uh, missionaries because they love talking about Jesus. They'll just add them to the pantheon, you know, great, you know, let's join the club. And it's so frustrating to missionaries. Uh, so I was, I was, 
all about that, preparing to become a missionary, and studied at Princeton Seminary to learn Biblical Greek and Hebrew, and uh, wanted to teach. And it was during that time that I had a rude awakening, and I had so much anxiety, uh, low self-esteem, depression, and was really tormented about sex and my sexuality because it was just this torture device that God had decided to bless or curse me with, you know, the, this this awful thing that was constantly putting my soul and in, in body in jeopardy of going to hell with all of these dangerous urges that I could never confess away, I could never get rid of them, I'd have dreams about it, you know, it, it's just, just this torture. I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, probably needed to go have sex. That's probably I needed, what needed well, to happen. <laughs> probably needed to, or, or I, needed I, to I, release. I needed to get married in high school, you know? And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that At part. 15. Yeah. So, Start having babies right away. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I was really just tormented about all these things. And at some point I was just desperate to not live under fear. And I just had this realization of all the fear that I was living under. And so I decided to do whatever it takes to get healthy. So I really started getting into mental health and therapy. And I quickly began to realize that teachings in the Bible and religious practices and doctrines were at the root of my psychological and sexual and, and all kinds of different distresses. And so that led me to begin more of the intellectual questioning. And it took me a period of a couple of years of trying harder to make it work and trying different versions of Christianity, trying more liberal progressive versions of Christianity. And eventually I just gave it all up and became an atheist. And that was part of also the some of the people that I was speaking with and getting help from and deconstructing were very much what I would now consider a fundamentalist form of atheism, a philosophical materialist atheism, uh, which which was just like science and rationality, that's it. Um, we live in a universe dominated by the principle of survival of the fittest. That's the only guiding principle to evolution and the universe. And, it, it, and basically that felt like a very massive fall from grace, we could say, a very disillusioning and isolating uh, worldview transition, you know, losing this just massive coherent sense of meaning and purpose and connection, and, and then feeling like reality was just fundamentally fragmented, random, meaningless. I had to completely construct my own meaning, and I was fighting a losing battle against death, and I would lose, and then that's it at the end. That's That was kind of the sense of it. And, and it was all up to me to figure it out with my egoic mind, with my rationality. And so, but I did that, and that was also useful to a certain extent because, uh, you know, really uh, regaining my rational faculties and critical thinking and all of that. But I ended up moving to California to start over, and then I had another awakening which was caused by psychedelic mushrooms. Yes, our favorite topic. There we Continue. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I, I originally started using them for their healing purposes uh, because I, I had heard that they were incredibly powerful for, for healing a variety of different mental health issues. And I just, just started working with them and found them to be nothing short of miraculous. So did you find that when you did psychedelic mushrooms, <clears throat> I, I feel like religion made me see that God did not exist and mushrooms made me see God in everything. Right. Like that was my experience with it. Like it, I was so closed down spiritually and mushrooms like, reactivated something where it was like oh holy shit no we do have a spiritual body and like mm -hmm. this is we are all connected like it that was that was that moment of like everything's I can, connected no it's like i can see <laughs> god like i get it now i wonder what jesus was tripping on <laughs> like, <laughs> 
don't know. Was that was that your experience, Andrew? <laughs> yes, but it, it, it took me actually a couple, probably about two years to really shift into a more spiritual type paradigm because I, I kept trying to fit my experiences into a secular materialist framework, mm. but they, they just strained it to the breaking point and I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. The more I went down the rabbit hole and also using other practices aside from psychedelics like meditation, like mm-hmm. breath work, mm-hmm. uh, like different mystical practices for inducing non-ordinary states of consciousness. Yeah. And, have and, you uh, ever done um have you ever done kinds of body work that kind of put you into like that meditative trance? It's almost like a psychedelic experience in itself. Have you ever experienced somewhat, that? Somewhat, somewhat. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different things out there and there's all kinds of well-developed, highly sophisticated traditions and technologies that exist, but they're uh, not acknowledged by a secular materialist paradigm because they tend to cause people to question and contradicts its yeah. underlying assumptions. There's actually a study I just found on this, um, on psychedelics altering metaphysical beliefs and how they overwhelmingly tend to shift people from a hard line uh, yeah. physicalist paradigm. I mean, I'm in the the plant medicine community. I don't know anyone who's in it and who's like really working with these in an ongoing concerted way who is still of that perspective. Yeah. Uh, because just... Uh, the nature of the experiences and and how they show correlations between what happens in consciousness and the outside world and and just just how they they really evidence that there's something more to intelligence and consciousness beyond just the human mind and we're not the only intelligent actors in this universe so anyway that's that's a little pedestal on that but we, we, <laughs> we can that. talk we can talk more about a r- religious trauma but i think that's one of the biggest traumas of of really fundamentalist religion is the enslavement of human consciousness yeah that absolutely. it it suppresses spiritual and when i say spirituality i'm mostly referring to consciousness studies and consciousness development uh, cuz spirituality can be kind of like a nebulous term and and it kind of presupposes this separate realm that can't really be studied and we don't really know what it means but but I'm talking about consciousness our subjective experience uh the, what you could call the mind and and so really we can approach that in a in a pretty logical and rational way and we don't have to apply to supernaturalism or superstition there are well-developed methods of reliably inducing and reproducing mystical experiences and cataloging those and looking at how these relate to life. I mean, it's really, you can approach it in an empirical, methodological way. Uh, so it's quite different, I think, from the version of spirituality that a lot of us were taught. But coming out of that, it's very easy to approach it as if it were the same. And that, that can be where we there are some of the pitfalls. I love where this conversation has led <laughs> because Rachel and I were just, I just got body work today and I was like, it was an amazing experience. It felt like a psychedelic experience. And she was like, what was different about it? I'm like the, my body workers like presence in the, like holding space for, for me to have that experience. Um, but it's also because we've been doing this really deep work of diving into consciousness and diving into our bodies and being guided into our bodies. And that's something when you said in the enslavement of the mind, like religion enslaves the mind, it really, it, 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 it takes consciousness and it like, it tells you, you can't trust it and you can't trust your gut. You can't trust your own inner wisdom, your, your own inner guide. You can't, you can't trust your body. Your body is evil. You know, all of these things that we're programmed to believe. And so when we're able to drop in to those practices and get inside ourselves, like breath work is something where you're, you're inducing your own psychedelic experience through, through over oxygenation. It's incredible what you can, the medicine you can find within your own body. And, um, all of that is considered, you know, witchcraft and paganism and, you know, evil satanic practices, you know, according to evangelicals, but it's, it's the most powerful medicine that we as humans, conscious humans have. Right. And so why is that? Why is it that all of these very powerful healing modalities that actually produce 
spiritual experiences are labeled as demonic and evil and are outlawed or suppressed by right? religious fundamentalism. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's like, yes. oh no, we don't want you to think too hard. <laughs> we don't want you to, to I think know. it's just about control. I mean, it's got to be. Because think about the freedom that comes with knowing your own self and your own mind and your own body and being able to get that feeling from your own experience versus needing to go to someone else for that or another church or whatever, you know, like if, if they can keep you coming back and they can keep controlling you, then like, of course they don't want you to go out and figure that out for yourself. Exactly. They, and, and they like to, to siphon your sexual energy and channel it for their sinister yes. purpose. Well, and like, I mean, we can, we can talk about sexual sex, energy. We can talk about sex, sexological stuff that like that is in a spiritual practice in its own like i mean i've talked to um i had another podcast where we did an episode with someone who did like sex magic and just in tantric practices and hearing about um you know how how actually powerful it is if you're using sex and sensuality and that energy that you're creating um to change worlds to make massive shifts and um I think that it's interesting that the United States is claim it claims to be like a Christian nation, you know, one nation under God. And um it's 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 a nation that's ruled by old white men who are trying to suppress all of these things and they're trying to keep us from being in touch with this intense amount of power because if if we all ha were able to like encompass this and grab onto it and use it oh my gosh we would like overthrow everything but but no we're gonna we're gonna suppress that and we're gonna hang back and not do anything yes christian nationalism right yeah. and so there's an article i wrote called god the fascist Oh my and gosh, yes. It, it's, <laughs> it's on my website, lifeafterdogma.org, and it, it traces fascism in the Bible and shows how God is portrayed as a fascist demagogue in the Bible and with a, fasci with a fascistic regime uh, commanded to do holy war in the Old Testament through literal holy war uh, with the chosen people of God advancing mm -hmm. an ethno-state and uh, in the New Testament, through the Great Commission Conquest, which is another kind of crusade, but it's more ideological, spiritual, uh, re religious colonialism. And so, so really, I mean, the fascistic paradigm, the Christian nationalism only makes sense because it's in there. It's in the book. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not, I don't want to be black and white. I don't want to say that. That's the only portrayal of God in the Bible. I, I don't think it's all, all or nothing, all good or bad. But really, it makes sense because the model of deity was a tyrant king in the ancient times. You know, when a lot of these major ideas were developed, when they looked to the model of ruler, who did they have? They had these, these kings, these demagogues. And, you know, they, why is God so narcissistic and vengeful in the Bible? Well, because these rulers were, were terrified of someone else you know, cutting them down and taking over their regime. And so they, they commanded and ruled through fear and brutality. That's why fear is, is the basis of the beginning of wisdom and, and fearing God and bowing down to God. Uh, that, that's mm -hmm. what they did in ancient times. And it's why obedience is so emphasized and why God is so obsessed with seeking God's glory. It's, it's not because of some lofty philosophical scheme uh, that, that Christian... Uh, theologians came up with afterwards about how, well, it, God getting the most glory is what makes sense and serves the highest good. It's because that's what ancient demagogic rulers do. Yeah. Wow. History repeats itself, so people just need to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know so why true. no one's paying attention. <laughs> like, you read this Bible, like forwards and backwards when you're raised in the church and um, like studying it profusely. And yet you're not getting any of this stuff that's like so blatant and clear as day right in front of you because you're so brainwashed to look at the Bible through a very specific lens. Like it's just wild to me that I understand more about 
the messaging that the Bible contains now that I've been out of this for almost 10 years than when I was totally immersed in it and I was memorizing big chunks of the Bible and was totally missing all of these patterns. Mm -hmm. There are so many epiphanies I've had too, like since deconstructing, like, how did I not see this? You know, like, how did I not see that this was totally fucked up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, and do you know why? I mean, because fundamentalists don't actually study the Bible. They don't study it critically. They're not able to study it because of their very narrow lens and their presuppositions of assuming that the Bible is inerrant, which I would say is the, the core doctrine of evangelicalism and fundamentalism is the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Yeah. That it's mm-hmm. it contains no errors and it's true in everything that it claims. When you read the Bible that way, you can't actually study it. You can't actually see what it says because it's a collection of ancient texts written by different people who often disagreed with each other, you know, saying all kinds of different things. And and so, you know, when you leave that framework, you have a lot more liberty to actually appreciate the texts in certain ways and then obviously to uh, see the harms and the the untruths in it as well, but that framework is so limited. I mean, people in that framework don't pay attention to a, a ton of biblical scholarship because it comes from people who they consider to be deceived or liberal, who they label and and you know don't mm-hmm. actually pay attention except to try to disprove it and and bend it into their worldview. Yeah, yeah. A lot of jumping through loops when you're an evangelical Christian to make it make sense. And that's because you have to. So I think a lot of people don't realize, too, that you know, believe, being a fundamentalist doesn't necessarily have to do with intelligence. There are a lot of really intelligent people who are in it. It, it has to do with more of our fundamental psychological needs. So in terms of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or, or any kind of a psychological scheme— you know, belonging needs, belonging to community, uh, having a sense of meaning and purpose, uh, feeling that one is loved and accepted. Things like that are survival level needs. You know, you need to belong yeah. to the community to survive as an animal, as a homo sapien. And yeah. so, you know, leave, losing that is a crisis, is a psychological and survival crisis. And I think all of us have probably, to some level, experienced it as such. Yeah. You know, so the intellect tends to come in the service of these needs, to be employed in their service, not the other way around. We're we're not primarily intellectual, rational beings. Yeah. Yeah. We we had a guest on last week who talked about how um, it's, it's safety, security, and certainty are the three big survival things that religion, fundamentalist religion gives you. And so when you, when you step away from that, or you start looking at it through a a critical lens or an analytical lens, you, you lose those, (laughs) you, you lose all of your safety, security and certainty. And you go, it is a crisis. It is, I mean, I felt it like physically in, in my body. Um, A lot of people carry their emotion you know, in the tissues, right? And you feel like can physically feel that. I've I've known people who like started deconstructing and it's like, you know, they're getting migraines constantly because it's like mm-hmm. this process their body is going through where they're just in it like this high stress cortisol release, you know, that fight or flight because they no longer have certainty. They no longer have safety. They no longer have have that security that that their faith gave them. That's really that's scary. That's really, really scary to go through. Speaking of safety, Andrew, you um, work specifically with people's fear of hell, right? And um, I guess I would love to just hear a little bit more about that and your approach to it and um, how common that is when you are sort of working with people you know, right after they're leaving Christianity or they're deconstructing or, you know, things like that. I'm sure they just feel completely unsafe in that area. Yeah, absolutely. So fear of hell is one of the fears I walk people through. I guess I should backpedal a little bit. Uh, So I'm 
currently I'm completing my master's in counseling in August. Mm-hmm. And so I, I support people all over the place through coaching, through trauma-informed coaching. And uh, come September, I'll be supporting them as a therapist as well on that position. Oh, congrats. So, so, thank you. That's a big yeah. step up. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I use a lot of different modality, therapeutic kinds of modalities and trauma-informed modalities and work through a variety of issues. Um, I would say that religious, well, that this form of religiosity functions as a total identity system. So it really impacts every single aspect of your being. Uh, and it, it really... The, the church or the religion commands obedience to the deity and its texts and its author- the authority of the community mediated through those texts uh, in totality in your sexuality, the way you spend your time, your money, who you relate to, how you think, how you relate to yourself. It's really a total system. And for a lot of people like myself, that can involve their careers, their livelihood as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so... Not only can the beliefs themselves be highly abusive and and traumatizing, which many of the the beliefs are abusive and controlling, but also the experience of leaving and transitioning can can cause PTSD and can be just a highly jarring experience that often takes years, uh, especially when people aren't getting the support that they need, aren't like working with someone individually, which a lot of people... I think make the mistake of doing is just relying on online forums and, and not really getting that deep one-on-one kind of work. Uh, so I work with people through a lot of different religious fears and phobias. You know, one of them is, is uh, fear about the rapture, rapture anxiety, Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, religious kinds of OCD, uh, you know, different, different fears about sexuality. Uh, but the fear of hell uh, to answer your question, I think is a root level fear and the primary motivation for obedience that there's no higher possible motivation, I think, than the threat of eternal torture. And so when people are in this form of religion, uh, there's there are certain mechanisms to keep that fear at bay. It's uh, the fear is all simultaneously always reinf- constantly reinforced by teachings, uh, but it's also kept at bay by adhering to the norms of the community, by adhering to the practices, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, uh, confessing the sinner's prayer, and and certain doctrines like some groups have assurance of salvation or election. It's always shaky. You never really know whether you're saved, uh, which mm-hmm, is part yeah. of the the anxiety that keeps people. Uh, reliant on the system and enslaved, but don't get me started on Calvinists. They're, <laughs> they're <yeah>. real. <laughs> oh, yeah. they're, they're great, There's right? only a couple chosen. We don't know who it is. I don't know. I don't know. It might be you. It might not be you. Yeah. And and if it if it's not you, then praise God. Right? God's going to be glorified. It's so beautiful. So. so so yeah, when I think when people leave, the lid is taken off that anxiety, those assurance doctrines and practices that keep the anxiety unconscious often. So often people aren't aware that they're afraid of hell uh, because it's press, suppressed into the unconscious, but the motivation is there, it's happening. And so mm-hmm. the lid breaks off and it's out in the open, uh, especially when people start to question uh, they're they're terrified of questioning because even questioning might result in mm-hmm. going to hell, oh, but then yeah. you can't stop it. And it's just this can be this really torturous, isolating process. You don't know who to talk to, who to trust. It might rat you out, all, all kinds of things. Mm. It's really, really can be a really hard experience. And then especially if you're a pastor's kid. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Or if you're a minister. That, yeah. If you're a minister, pastor's kid, missionary, mm-hmm. missionary kid, um, anything where you're like your family or yourself is that, like, that's their livelihood or yeah. your livelihood. That's, that's a scary place to start questioning. Exactly. So there's an article on my website called Healing Hell Trauma um, that, that people can reference for all of this. Um, but there's generally people have the what if question. Yeah. What if I'm wrong? 
And if there's any small chance that hell is real and that they're right, then I might go to hell. Even if I don't really believe that it's logical anymore, you know, even if I don't really believe mm-hmm. that it exists, uh, it's a it's it's a risk. People or people will frame it as a risk. Yeah. That you know, I better. I, I can never rest at night because it's impossible to have absolute certainty on this issue. Uh, so that so there's a lot of work to be done here on deconstruction, on going over the intellectual issues and like the history of how hell was developed theologically is often useful for people to know. Yeah, to kind of understand where it came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. I can give you like the, the soundbite version of that. Yeah, sure. we would love that. All right. Please. Let, let, let's do it. Let's do a quick dive. So hell wasn't developed in the Old Testament. They had Sheol was the word, which is kind mm-hmm. of like the either the grave or this underworld type realm or just death. And then around the intertestamental period or, or slightly before them, uh, apocalypticism came about, a doctor, apocalyptic doctrines. And what was happening for the Jewish people is that they were exiled and oppressed and conquered by these massive foreign empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they had this crisis of faith because they were the chosen people of God. They were supposed to be protected. They had the covenant and the law. And then what was happening? The exact opposite. Uh, you know, they were they were getting dashed to pieces. They they saw the most horrific human atrocities possible: genocide, uh, all kinds of different things, war crimes. And so, how could God be just? And how could they be chosen if the promises were broken? So, what happened was a belief in the afterlife really took root uh, because if God's justice isn't coming now, it's going to come in the next life. So even though we don't see it, we can still believe in God's goodness and justice because they're going to get what's coming to them in the future. And so then there's this afterlife and there is a vengeful uh, reaction, a trauma reaction of vengeance because one of the reactions to trauma is aggression is yeah. the fight, flight, or freeze. So the fight response and the vengeance and revenge and through violence, it, it can can happen that way. And so when you're experiencing this kind of hellish violence as a society, you know, what kind of vengeance would match your feeling of the wrong done to you? Uh, you know, mm. when 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 you see in the book of Psalms, they're saying, Blessed are the ones who who dash the children of, of the Babylon against the rocks. Like that's the kind of emotional <laughs> energy that, but, but they were experiencing yeah. like some horrendous stuff. Right. Right. Sure. And so hell is a doctrine of trauma and vengeance. The, the, the underlying it's, it's a, it's like a, it has response. like trauma genetics to this, yeah. the evolution of this doctrine. And so I, you know, do you really want to base your faith on something like that, on on revenge and trauma? I mean, that's that's what it comes out of, and and it it got developed around then, and and this idea again, the apocalypticism developed then that God was going to have this final day of judgment and make everything right and, and banish the evildoers and, and eternal torment was the was the thing. So that's in a nutshell how it was developed. Uh, so so having that context can be helpful because it's like, uh, is that really? You know, this this awful vision of retributive justice, is that really the best way of justice? Right. Uh, but, but that's one part. Uh, the other thing is the what-if question is contingent on uh, the whole system being true. So it's not what if hell exists. You're not afraid of just any idea of hell in general, probably. You're afraid of the vision of hell presented to you by your specific religion. Yeah, and what do they so all say? Are so so <laughs> it's a it's really a fear that the religion is true, not a fear that hell exists, because the hell can only exist if the religion is true, and if what they say about getting to hell is true, which they say is you will go to hell if you do not confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior in the specific way that we tell you to. So it's very specific. So any one of those things, uh, any one of the pillars of their faith. If it doesn't stand, then the whole system collapses, you know, then their whole idea of hell, uh, you know, most people aren't afraid of, of 
of other other kinds of hell. I mean, they might be, but, but it's really so. In order for the what if question, in order for there to actually be a risk of going to hell, you have to be able to demonstrate that the whole belief system is true in every single category of truth, scientifically, philosophically, ethically, psychologically, and most people can't do that who are questioning or leaving. <laughs> right. So that's just kind of the some of the the logical level uh, of it. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, there's also an issue of understanding triggers and trauma responses, and that uh, when we are triggered, uh, we we go into this fight, flight, or freeze response, and our our connection to our rational brain is is shut down. And so it really helps people to recognize and be aware when that's happening. That when I'm triggered, I'm in this hyper aroused, anxious state. Uh, the best thing to do is is to to really calm yourself down, take some deep breaths, uh, do what you need to do, uh, because that's not the best time to really, you know, figure the whole thing out. You really want to calm your mind and body down first, yeah, and mm-hmm. and also really uh, chart out chart out the reasons for and against believing in hell. Most people find that they don't actually have very good reasons for believing in it, other than fear. Like why? Why would you believe in hell uh, aside from being afraid of it? Do you have good reasons? Would you consciously choose to believe in the doctrine of hell? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what... Well, I want you to go back and and kind of reemphasize something you said, but something that kind of came to mind for me when you said it was um, that people <laughs> people aren't afraid of hell they're afraid of proving their faith or they're afraid of that their faith is real religion that their religion is real i would like you to expand a little more on that because that is a very interesting way to look at it but then also i feel like what you were talking about with vengeance and it being a trauma response like you have no idea how many times i've had conversations with people about heaven and hell and they're like well if hell isn't real then that just means that what happens after I die is going to be the same as that person who did that horrible thing. And I think they deserve Mm -hmm. to burn in a lake of fire. And I feel like they deserve an eternity of suffering. So, and because I can't let go of my own pain and what I think that this person deserves, I am going to hold on to this belief. And that is a very painful place to live. That's a painful place to exist. If you're in that much distress that you you feel like someone genuinely like deserves like the worst possible thing. Like you can't even let it let go of that reality for yourself because then that would mean letting it go for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would like you to dive into um, that perspective of, of the fear really being in, is your religion like in your religion? I've never heard it put that yeah, way before. Me, me neither. Thought and of it, it that way. I I need to understand this more. This is but you're right because like we don't really believe in like Zeus's heaven and Hades hell. Right. Essentially, I mean, I know yeah. they're all sort of linked, but like we don't. We're not afraid of that hell. We're afraid of exactly. evangelical exactly. hell. Exactly. <laughs> so, so view viewing it as a matter of risk is a categorical error uh, because there's no risk if there's no possibility of it being true. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not a matter of there being a 0.01% chance of me going to hell. There's zero risk if the system isn't true. And for the system to be true, you have to be able to demonstrate everything that it says is true. Mm -hmm. And so, again, like people who are questioning or have come out tend to have hundreds of reasons not to believe it's true and, and tons of evidence you know, so that's a very right. hard thing to do. Uh, but but a lot of times people are triggered by testimonies too, by people saying, you know, giving these evangelistic stories. Oh, I died and went to hell, and it's real. And what if that's true? So that's another mechanism that's used. Uh, but but with that, I I think yeah, it's what the fuck is that? I think it's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, people have all kinds of experiences, and I think it's helpful here. Uh, to be a little bit skeptical when people are influenced by doctrinal motivations. You know, doctrine can heavily influence our experiences, our dreams, uh, different kinds of things, or people might distort their experiences when they're telling. I mean, I've heard, there are all kinds of miracle claims that are fallacious and 
just just that people are telling stories to convince themselves in this kind of yeah. religion. I know I was when I was a, a Christian, or mm-hmm. you know, so it's not really motivated by evidence in a lot of ways. But at the same time, even if people have these kinds of visions, you know, then then you have to take seriously all the kinds of visions that people have who aren't Christians, and and so why aren't they believing in the all other religions? Because in other religions, they have visions and beliefs on those too. So if you're establishing yeah. your faith on that, you know, uh, so and I, again, I think when we look at these things more empirically, like we, we, there are scientific studies on near death experiences, and they do not match this Christian vision. Uh, of, uh, it, in in nearly this same kind of a way, anyway, that there are very different accounts and experiences that you know uh, transpersonal psychology seeks to study, and there there are a lot of different studies and research going on on this. But it's a very different vision than the one presented here. It tends to be when we go into consciousness studies, people tend to come to something of a a view of their consciousness being more fundamental of of the interconnectedness and wholeness of all reality uh the oneness non-duality is is the word uh, to describe a lot of these frameworks that that there's no separation and that as we grow and evolve our consciousness we can experience uh, our fundamental connectedness and a deep sense of wholeness you could say original wholeness or original goodness mm-hmm. and and really uh Part of the work that I do is help people to reconnect with this sense of inherent goodness and wholeness, and that all the healing capacities, you could say, of the universe, or that people sought in God for love and acceptance and power, are fundamentally found inside, internally, that that the God really was you all along, whether you believe in that God literally or, or as a metaphor, that uh, one of the biggest traumas of this whole system is outsourcing your agency or your, you could say, your divinity uh, and giving away your power. And yeah. it's really healing process to rediscover that, you know, that you can trust yourself, uh, that, that healing, uh, you, you can do this healing thing through your own inner intelligence. And, and of course, with helping professionals, with the human community, because we're not separate from nature and our environments. Yeah. <laughs> I, you're just you're just hitting every single nail on the head and um would you like to be on this podcast for forever <laughs> um, you, you you got an ex-preacher you know yeah i just this is i i just know our listeners are gonna pull so much you, from this and it I just ties a, into all our episodes it's great it does. <laughs> i i have a weird question now going back to psychedelics though and hell do you do uh, okay. I, how should I say it? Is, is it useful to use psychedelics when confronting the fear of hell to some extent? Like, like, does it, cause I know like with LSD or mushrooms, there's studies showing that as people are dying or when they're dying, it really, when given psychedelics, it really relaxes them and kind of opens up their mind to realize this is a very natural process. Like this is normal and natural and gives them peace and stuff. So I wonder if when trying to work through that fear of hell or the fear of, you know, your religion being true, if psychedelics can help in that area and have you explored that, I guess. Yes, I think big time and psychedelics in a safe and supported setting. I always recommend that and I always recommend doing your homework and looking for contraindications, other issues, but assuming that it's done in a good way. Mm-hmm. And in an, and in an intentional way, yeah. Uh, I think psychedelics are one of the most promising treatments for religious trauma that's out there. That's why I'm so excited about them, and because of two things specifically. So, in terms of research and studies, psychedelics are being massively researched for treating PTSD and depression and other mental health issues and drug addictions. So yeah. all kinds of mental health issues, and all of these are related to religious trauma, which has a lot of chronic PTSD. And uh, so psychedelics are really, really good at getting to the root of traumas and and of helping people to find re- relief and release from those traumas. And uh, there's there's also a construct in psychology known as existential anxiety that refers to... Uh, 
existential issues like fear of death, uh, uh, mortality, uh, nihilism, like uh, feeling like life is meaningless, uh, feeling like we're fundamentally alone in the universe. So these these are described as existential anxiety, and I think psychedelics are incredibly promising, if not the most promising treatment for that. And th- a lot of people experience that after leaving a religion. You lose your whole sense of meaning and purpose. You're flung into this universe. You don't know, you know, these grand big questions of life and death. And uh, how do I, is there a sense of meaning? Is there any point to living? Things like this that I think most of us are confronted with, psychedelics tend to powerfully address that people will come out of them with a often a deep sense of meaning and purpose, really feeling that like they're here for a reason, often facing and confronting and healing that fear of death. And there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of research that's coming out that John Hopkins studies on end of on cancer, cancer patients and end of life anxiety is is the one you're referencing mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, but 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 specifically about psychedelics, it's it's the mystical experiences that they occasion. Uh, that are are cited as the the healing elements for these kinds of issues. So people having these these deep experiential dives into, uh, you could say, the cosmos or or our our connection to to nature, and and having all kinds of experiences that are really really powerful and healing. Whatever, however you choose to view that, whether you you decide I'm an atheist or or not, I think the the belief system. I, I mean, I know I'm talking about that and, and I don't align with that personally, but uh, I respect people who do and I res- respect people wherever they are in their journey. I don't want people mm-hmm. just to listen to me. You know, I really want you to listen to yourself and, and, but also be curious and explore things that are powerful to heal and make up your own mind. Uh, so, but I think the healing and the transformational benefits are primary to uh, what we believe about them. And that's where I've kind of reverse the the doctrine system. So dogma is about beliefs first, and you're in or out based on the beliefs. So I, I, I prioritize experience now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're at the center, you're at the helm, uh, based on your own experience, your own judgment, your own sense of reality. Put that first and do your own study and inquiry, and then let the beliefs arise out of that. Yeah. I, that's that very profound work, and it requires a level of um, dropping the ego (laughs) a little bit. And um, (laughs) I think people who are raised evangelical, I know I had a loaded ego in a most, in in a very interesting way, because I feel like evangelicalism is always like, Oh, die to yourself. And you know, you have to like, it talks, our philosophies talk about, um, you know, dying to yourself and dropping the ego and, but but then there's like this arrogance that arises that like I, you know, am saved and I am a better person than you and what can't you believe this. is wrong. You can't touch this. <laughs> and um, just add on to that, the fact that I grew up in another country. And so I came back to the United States and I'm like, I am way cooler than all of you. Um, <laughs> you guys have no idea. My worldview is so big. <laughs> and, um, I, I feel like it took me a long time because I did psychedelics without intention without the right setting, without the right guidance, um, not looking into contraindications, um, or indications or anything. I just did it, um, with like friends when I was first starting to explore life outside of my parents' home. And, um, it woke up a lot of really interesting things. I had a lot of really bad trips, so I definitely don't recommend doing it unintentionally. You need to be very intentional about your psychedelics, but, um, it, it did open up this, uh, it opened up something in me where I realized, oh, I'm not the shit and I don't actually know all the answers or even understand my faith or my religion. And it kind of got me into a place where I started questioning more and I started being open to more schools of thought and more ways of life. Um, this was also during a time in my life where I was starting to understand my sexuality and I was starting to understand that I wanted, um, I was in like a monogamous relationship and I started like being like, I kind of want us to like stay in this monogamous, like in this relationship, but like, I want us to also be with other people and explore other people. Um, I was like 
realizing I was okay with that. And this was all after psychedelics, after I had started dropping into that. And so I just, I, I kind of start to see these patterns of like, oh, that's kind of when this started to shift for me. And this is when this started to shift for me. And it really was after I did mushrooms and after I did acid and um, all of these different, you know, had these different psychedelic experiences and, and started to realize that um, I didn't have all of the answers in my way of life wasn't even the way of life that I wanted to have. It didn't even align with me. <laughs> so it, it can be very powerful, but also like proceed with caution and know what you're doing. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Really, really, you, really crazy. Do you in your practice, Andrew, um, kind of help people with that or like, like are you, when you coach them or if, if they decide that they want to do psychedelics, do you kind of help them on that journey a little bit or do you refer them to someone or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So I provide psychedelic integration and, and I can advise people on the process and how best to prepare and help them heal and unpack, but I'm not directly involved in the referral or the administration it's because of the the legality so it's kind of like it's your decision and it's not legal in california right um it it's decriminalized in a couple different places they're working on the state uh, but it's not legal it's decriminalized in certain places i think the integration aspects of what you do though is hugely helpful um because integration with psychedelics is is the key to it. Because you can do psychedelics and then just like go about your life. And honestly, what what will happen with mushrooms is if <laughs> if you do mushrooms and you do not integrate afterwards, a lot of times, a lot of things that were a problem in your life that you were not aware of or you were bearing will be very amplified, and things will get a lot worse before they get better if you're not integrating. And um, I mean. Studies have shown this with like people, and and I know people who've gone through this too, where like, you know, they had a, you know, substance abuse issues, they did mushrooms, and then mushrooms woke them up to all of the reasons why they had uh, substance abuse issues, because substance abuse is just a band-aid to cover something up. So it brought all the other stuff to the surface, but then they didn't integrate. So then the substance abuse got worse Mm, instead of getting better because they were like, Ah, I don't want to deal with this. This yeah. is hard and painful. So I'm going to keep drinking or I'm going to keep doing these drugs and I'm not going to integrate everything that I've learned because mushrooms is like, Hey, here's a mirror. Look at it. But now you need to work through this. I've, right. I've given you this gift of seeing where the shadows are, but you have to work through those shadows. You have to learn to move through them um, to get to the other side of it. And if you don't integrate, you could, end up in a pretty dark place and and that for me i i had my first like mental breakdown very soon after i did mushrooms for the first time um because there was no integration and Mm -hmm. um mushrooms can also i'm bipolar and i think that was around the time like they can if you're already predispositioned to certain things like bipolar and schizophrenia sometimes they'll like speed up that process of it showing itself Mm -hmm. in in your in your in your body um so that kind of all started to spiral and um i blamed i was like oh it was because i did a bunch of drugs and it was like no 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 no. you just didn't integrate what you learned (laughs) it took you years to integrate (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and this is also just a, a pearl about healing coming out of a fundamentalist environment where you're promised miracle solutions yeah it's a miracle approach to healing you know god give me this god do this god take this away whereas the reality of healing is that our agency is always involved we're involved in the process so uh, you know we we might there are ways of assisting that like psychedelics uh, that's one tool meditation psychotherapy uh, but it involves you facing your issues, really feeling the feelings you don't want to feel. You got to feel it to heal it, and uh, doing the work and make actually making changes. So all of these things can show you, you know, what's wrong and provide a healing experience. But there's, you know, you're always you're involved in the whole process from beginning to end, and that's part of getting your power back. Is is getting a sense of of responsibility. And being at the center of the helm, you know, it's not a, it, 
uh, it can be a scary thing, but it's worth it. It's worth the empowerment. Uh, but that's, again, why a lot of people will choose something like fundamentalism, where they don't have to make the decisions and 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 they're told they don't have to do the work, but it ends up just bypassing it and you're still yeah. dealing with your trauma. So it's better to do the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My gosh. Well, I have a quick question too about like healing because I feel like you guys are well-versed in it. And healing is something that I want to do and I've gone to therapy and I'm still in therapy and I definitely want to work through my issues. But for someone deconstructing, any listeners that we have, and for me too, what would be a good first step to start addressing the healing process? Because I feel like it can be really overwhelming uh, when coming out of religion and realizing, I mean, what, religious trauma just became a thing like a couple years ago, you know, like... That like it's all very new, and so it's like, where? What is the first step in even approaching this? I guess. You, you're talking about like integration because you're in therapy. So is it more like integration of the things you're learning about your trauma? Is that more what you're asking sort about? Of, because I feel like talk therapy can only go so far. Yeah, like that was my experience with it. You can, yeah, and so I mean, not that talk therapy is not good. I oh, think it's great. it can be Everybody very good do it. and it can help you. Yeah. It can help you work through and see things that you might not see, you know, yourself. I mean, so even if you're doing like talk therapy, say you're doing, um, you know, something more geared toward religious trauma or say you want to do psychedelics or say you want to do meditation or body work or whatever it is. Like, I guess I'm thinking more of the mindset here. Like, how do you stand at like, the edge of all the bullshit you get to go work through now because of how you were raised or like the fear of hell. Like think of all the fucking things you're looking at and saying, okay, I want to heal, but how the fuck do I do that? Yeah. So like, I guess what I'm asking is what is a reasonable first fucking step? (laughs) Andrew, me and you, we're just, I'm a a massage therapist. All right. All right. The the trauma informed therapist. Something easy. Like, for people yeah. listening, well, what's a good breathe. first? Okay. <laughs> Just breathe. That's the first step. How do I how do I solve all my problems in you one right go now? All right, <laughs> let's do it. Let's go. We, we've got ten minutes. <laughs> so, so yeah. This is, Andrew's this, like fuck. Yeah. This well, is well, no, no, no. It's a common therapy thing. Like I got these issues. Come on, three sessions. Yeah. Let, let, why am me. I not better? Why am I not better? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean not I mean we do see a lot of things resolve quickly though. I I do w- yeah. tend to work through fear of hell and a lot of things relatively quickly with people. I want to mm-hmm. say that there is a Once lot of Once it clicks it clicks. With uh yeah, and with a lot of the major issues of religious trauma, I think if if you know what you're working with, a lot of them can be processed a lot more quickly than with if someone doesn't know what they're working with. Um, yeah. so so getting the proper support is one thing. I do think it's I would suggest working with a therapist or at least someone who a coach or therapist or someone who you feel understands you and, you know, you have confidence that they could help you work through some of these issues. Should uh, I they think be uh, religious trauma and uh, it's they should it, be trauma know, it, informed. It, it, yeah. Probably. Trauma informed is good. Religious yeah. trauma informed is ideal, you know, but I don't, you know, not everyone can necessarily access that. Um, you can, sure. You can book a session with me, though, if you're interested in that. Um, So, uh, but I don't think they have to be. It certainly can be very helpful, uh, trauma-informed. But even just having that support is really critical, especially, you know, leaving a, a religion is one of the more major events a person can go through in life. It's it's up there like with losing a, a love a close loved one or 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 losing a career it's a major life event and life transition and i think people going through it deserve all the support that they can get so really treat yourself well and yeah. you know treat yourself like a like a million dollars i mean even if you don't have a million dollars you know really how would i you know treat someone who the best possible care plan i could find uh that's number one. Number two is really taking a process view to healing. Uh, you know, that that I really do think healing is a lifelong process. And there's a way to look at that to be optimistic. 
not looking at healing as an all or nothing view. So it's self-defeating to say it's only worth it if, you know, I have depression and it goes away once I do this thing. But if you say, on the other hand, you know, I've been doing this thing for two months and I'm noticeably less depressed. I'm still depressed, but it's a lot better. And there's certain mindset issues that have changed. So it's a step-by-step process often. Often it can be slow. Sometimes there are major breakthroughs. Uh, but, but you know, wouldn't it be better to be a little bit better than to be as bad as it is now? So, so really right, viewing yeah. it like it, embracing it's okay that it's going to take time. As long as I'm making progress, I'm going to be better in a year than I am now and, and viewing it more that way. So it's not a bad thing that you're always doing healing work. Uh, because, you know, we've been through a lot of things in life, uh, you know, not just religious trauma, but all kinds of other traumas and conditioning and and just part of the, the human experience. We need a lot of support. Uh, yeah. So so there's that is taking that and then taking a holistic perspective here as well. Uh, one of the issues with re- uh, traumatic fundamentalist religion is it's very cognitive. It's very intellectual. It's about belief and doctrine. And there's not much emphasis on the body. And I didn't talk about that with, with the hell trauma. But a lot of that, um, working with the body is really great for the hell trauma too. Uh, observing the sensations in the body when you're triggering, triggered, focusing on those sensations, getting comfortable with unpleasant sensations. You know, it's okay that my heart is beating really fast. Like, this is not actually dangerous. It's not actually something I need to escape. It just feels very uncomfortable. How can I relate to that differently? And getting into your body through things like dance, yoga, uh, you know, just uh, sexuality, other different ways of really, because the body was denied as uh, something that's this worldly, something that's carnal, that's not eternal, so kind of insignificant. So was things like finances and pleasure and just the material world. So really embracing all of that and, and, you know, so, so healing and wholeness has to do with every area of life and reclaiming all of that. So it's a big process. Uh, but, but so I do recommend uh, a therapy is great. Uh, but also within therapy, you can do things that are more than just talk therapy. I'm currently learning a modality and using some of it called internal family systems, which is uh, not just talk therapy. It really works with different parts of yourself and gets at some of the kinds of subconscious processes that say something like psychedelics does. And there's other therapeutic techniques that do that too. Uh, I really love breath work. Breath work is great too. It can, it can bring some of the psychedelic type things without having to take a psychedelic drug. It can bring a lot of emotional relief. I highly recommend meditation. I think there's nothing else like it in terms of really uh, regaining more space in your mind and more control over your just mental processes and peace. Uh, so, but we really have to take a holistic approach. You know, even a lot of therapists will say, you know, it's not just therapy here. Like you're going to have to, you know, implement a bunch of things and make a bunch of changes. And, and so uh, taking that holistic perspective and finding things that work for you, you know, nobody can tell you what you need to heal but if you find something or if you go to some workshop or find some modality or or some activity, you know, having fun, recreation, some community, then do that thing. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out for our listeners, um, every modality that Andrew has mentioned, we have resources for you and it's on our facebook group and we have we have healers holistic healers on that group we have a sexuality sensuality and intimacy i think andrew's in that doula. group now too andrew are you in that group now i, I am awesome That's right. we have yeah. andrew in that group we have um we have resident shaman in that group who can help you if um you are seeking out um if you want to do breath work or if you want to um, work with plant medicine, they can point you in the right direction. They can guide you through those processes. Um, I am a trauma-informed body worker. I'm in Kentucky. You, if you're in Kentucky, you can come and work with me in person. Um, I also do a little bit of coaching and um, I'm thinking about starting to travel around to different cities because I'm like right smack in the middle of the Midwest. So if you're like in Indianapolis or Cincinnati, Nashville, Chicago, hit me up. I might come through and and we can work together. I we have so many work resources. On your bod. 
Yes, we have so many resources <laughs> for people. Like every modality he mentioned, if if you if you heard something in that and you were like, hey, this is something I'm interested in, please reach out to us. Um, you can send us a DM. You can email us at cheers to leaving at gmail.com. DM us on Instagram or add yourself to the Facebook group, Cheers to Leaving Support Group, and um, put a post up in there. And I will connect you with people who can help you on in this process. It's not a journey because journeys have destinations. This is a process <laughs> um, because healing is ongoing. And, and Andrew, yeah. where can people find you if they want a coaching session with you? Where Tell them, tell them how to do it. Yeah, plug great. your socials and your websites great, great, and all great. the things. So lifeafterdogma.org is my website. I have a blog there with a lot of my writings. Uh, there's one in particular. It's called Is Evangelical Christianity's God the Devil? That article, I think, is is my best that I've written for deconstruction that's, and awareness. That's, that's uh, a great title. I want to get that one out there. So like, read that article and post It's It's... Yeah, I'll find it on your website and I'll put it in the show notes. So it's easy. Yes, it will be there. So, but lifeafterdogma.org, I have a lot of talks and resources and writings there. And uh, my email is andrew at lifeafterdogma.org. And there's also a link on my website where you can book a free discovery session, an inner freedom session, I call it, with me. And we can talk about, uh, just bring some more awareness to what you're going through. And I can support and hear you. And we can talk about coaching if that's something that you're interested in. I love awesome. that. Thank you so, so much for coming on to our podcast and for making the Thanks time. Thanks for going with the flow too. Yes. Absolutely. I feel like yeah. we were like, pew, 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 pew. We had an outline <laughs> and then like, we didn't follow the outline because we were talking about way more interesting things. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Great. Well, you'll just have to bring me back so we can do yes. all that. Yes. Yeah. So that I we mean, can yeah, do I, I actually wanted to talk to you about like PTSD and complex trauma as it relates to religion. Um, we're going to do another episode. So <laughs> Let's do it. That, yeah, that would be mm-hmm. fantastic. But thank you so, so much. And I know our listeners are going to pull a lot from this episode. I pulled a lot from it. I feel like, like I did too. you're our, you're our people. Like I'm listening to you and I'm just like, ah, yes. Cause like, this, these are the people I want to surround myself with are people who understand consciousness at this deeper level. And it's powerful. We're doing powerful things in the world. You are. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for meeting us. I know it's early for you, but uh, we appreciate it. Yes. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, it's been a fun. All right. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been another great episode of Cheers to Leaving. Yep. Peace out. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Cheers to Leaving. Please find me on Instagram and Twitter at Cheers to Leaving. If you would like to send me a DM and give me any sort of ideas for upcoming episodes, I would love to hear from you. If you are interested in coming on the podcast to share your story, I would also love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. It truly means so much to me and I'll see you next time.